This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. When we get up to play a jazz solo, we are making musical choices in the moment. And what will determine whether we play a great jazz solo is the quality of those musical choices and also how fast we are able to come up with them. And this all starts with effective practice. That's how we learn to make great musical choices. And so on today's show, I have a very special guest, Danny Rabin from the Prague jazz rock band Marbin, to talk all about that and his philosophy behind learning jazz improvisation, his philosophy behind effective practice and making great musical choices. This is going to be a good one. So get ready. Let's do this thing. Welcome to the LJS Podcast, where you get weekly jazz tips, interviews, stories, and advice for becoming a better jazz musician. And now your host, he's a jazz musician, author, and entrepreneur, Brent Bartstra. What's up, everybody? Brent here from LearnJazzStandards.com, which is a blog, a podcast, and videos all geared towards helping you become a better jazz musician. Yes, indeed, we have a very special guest on the show today, Danny Rabin, a guitar player, and in fact, a really, really, really good guitar player. And we're, we talk about a lot of things in this interview. This is a really good one. Uh, he, uh, let me just say this, Danny is a deep dude. I mean, he has some uh, deep philosophy about practicing and effective practicing. And, you know, he's a great source for all of this because he is, is such a great player. And when I first heard his band, Marbin, which is, is described as uh, a prog jazz rock band, uh, I became like an instant fan. And uh, if in case you haven't heard Marvin before, uh, here's just a little, 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 tiny little bit of kind of what the band sounds like. So there you go. Just a really quick little listen. That that's actually from their brand new album, uh, well, newer album, latest album called Strong Thing. Uh, and so, by the way, if you want to check out Marbin, you can go to marbinmusic.com to learn more about them. See why I became a fan of theirs. And if you want to check out their new album or any of their albums, you can go to marbinmusic.bandcamp.com. So be sure to check that out for sure. This is a little bit of a longer interview today. So uh, if you're stuck in rush hour traffic, you're in luck. Uh, if you're um, at the gym training for a half marathon like I am right now, you're also in luck. Or if you're just at home, grab your favorite beverage, your favorite snack. This is going to be a really good one. Now, really quickly, before we jump into the interview, let's just call this, uh, this podcast is sponsored today by my new book, Jazz Improvisation Made Simple. 
Now, to, uh, yesterday, March 1st, was the soft launch of the book, kind of meaning that the the ebook version and the paperback version, all being sold on Amazon, first time I've ever done something like that before, uh, is is out for still a cheaper price until March 8th uh, next week when it's going to be at full price again. So uh, this is a really great book, first of its kind, I believe, more of a self-help style book rather than a method book uh, of learning jazz improvisation. And and uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. So uh, go ahead, go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash jazz improv, learnjazzstandards.com forward slash jazz improv, and you'll get to uh, check that book out there. I know you're going to love it. All right, enough of that. Let's jump into my talk with Danny Rabin from Marbin. All right, welcoming on the show today is Danny Rabin, the guitarist from Marbin. So excited to have you, Danny. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So I'd love to, for those who don't know your band Marbin or who you are, I'd love for you just to get started by telling us like a little short bio about who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, Marbin is a combination of me and the saxophone player's last name, Markovich Rabin. Ah. And uh, yeah, we started around, we met around 2007 in Israel. That's where we're from. 2008, we moved to Chicago and we had the wild idea that we're going to tour and make albums and play fusion. Um, cause that's the music that we both kind of, I guess, grew up loving. Well, that's not even true, but that's the music we ended up making, you know, nice. for me, for me, it's weird. I'm a guitarist. And I was attracted to rock and metal sonically. Yeah. Right? It gave me my voice, that high gain guitar sound, which became very unpopular in jazz. You know, it's really it's really if you're if you're going for that guitar sound, you will notice in your career that there are a lot of gatekeepers who won't let you into their precious jazz festivals, which is now a decade later starting to not be an issue anymore, but Correct. certainly has, has held us back in many and from many opportunities at many points in time. So we, we made our first album in 2009. That's our self-titled one as a duo. And then we met the rhythm section that used to play with Pat Metheny in the 90s and wow. 2000s, Paul Wordico and Steve Rodby, and they played on our second and third album. Uh, and right around our third album, right around 2000, well, our, when the second album was done, Breaking the Cycle, we started touring uh, as our main and only source of income, 2011, and we've been doing it ever since. So we play between 200, 250 shows a year now. Ooh. Used to play much more. Used to play closer to 300. Wow. Um, and we built our own market for this kind of music just by being on the road night after night. We started off just playing for the bartenders. And we didn't believe what um, most jazz people believe. We didn't believe in flyover states. We didn't believe that there are places where stupid people live in this country that don't get this kind of music. We didn't believe that it's a coastal style and that the goal is somehow to play these four or five big markets and then fly to Europe and Asia, you know, for people yeah. who really get it. We, we knew that, uh, or we believed that the people here, there are intelligent people in every market. And there are people who like uplifting music that's not so basic um, and 
and going on that faith, you know, was really what kept us going. And, and, and I know now uh, what I knew then, which is, it's true. There, yeah. there are these people everywhere. So this is really a story of a grassroots sort of band that... Still is. That has become quite successful. I mean, touring yeah. all over yeah. the world. I mean, this is how many? This is your ninth album. You're on your ninth album here this, now. This is we just finished our eighth, eighth album, and we have uh, yeah, quarter of a million followers on Facebook, and uh, you know these live streams that I do almost daily. There get to an average of ten to fifteen thousand people a day. That's awesome. And yeah, we're able to make a living doing this, but. Everybody in our lives told us that it was going to be impossible. Our, our mothers were the only ones that believed, uh, <laughs> As believed in us. Yeah. yeah, but but we got to see what happened to our friends that we graduated jazz school with, who told us, you shouldn't go on the road, you should go be in the scene, right? You should right. go do a lot of things. And uh, we ended up in very different places. Yeah, but well, I find that the musicians who think outside of the box, right, especially ne- you know ne- nowadays, not to say that it hasn't always been hard to be a musician, but nowadays the musicians that are thinking outside of the box of how to approach their career and build a career around music, those seems to be the ones to me that end up doing something, whether it's in education or whether it's in live performance or recording, um, and it sounds like that's what you guys did. Well, you get, it's not, it definitely doesn't guarantee success, but sure. you get to succeed or fail on your own terms. Uh, so there are a lot of popular ways of failing. Uh, <laughs> and and you, if you want a, a sure, sure, surefire uh, popular way of failing is just going off, being very pragmatic and very scared. Right. Uh, and not following some sort of big, elaborate, long game and big, elaborate dream. And I think that it's it's kind of, it's weird to say, but there's nothing more practical than following your musical dream because there are better jobs than music if you just want to make money and have steady income. And a lot of people have this 50-year-old mentality leaving jazz school of their 401ks it's like what what are you talking about dude i just go go out and do something like like you know live a little and there is something about i see it on people if you really try the best you can and fail you will be able to put your dreams to sleep peacefully you know they say that in in, in mythology ghosts are something that happens when you don't bury something properly. Yeah, I love that. So, so the idea is that you don't want your dream to become a ghost of a dream. Right. You know, so you get to either succeed and live, see what, how, how that dream and that vision manifests in life, or you get to bury it properly through giving it the respect it deserves to following it to the end, to try to tour, try to see, try, try to see how it manifests in life. And then if it dies, it dies, but it won't haunt you. Right. Absolutely. And you know, while a lot of my audience may not be trying to become, you know, a world touring uh, career musician like you, a lot of musicians I talk to have a lot of limiting beliefs in my audience. You know, I'm too old to get started. I'm too, uh, I started too late. You know, I, I can't do for this, this, the reason, but they really want to play music in this case, particularly jazz, and they really want to play it well. It's something that they're passionate about. But 
you know, when we don't go for it, when we don't give it our best shot, like you said, you know, if we're not, if we're not going out there, um, we're not allowing ourselves, you know, even to fail on our own terms, right? That's um, right. So I love that attitude about, but, about uh, but I mean, music. For me, it was important. A lot of things that come with the success in this were goals of mine. Not initially, but, but eventually, you know, like uh, the recognition, um, getting getting paid through this also very being very competitive with other players like i don't have this uh i never had this hippie approach that like oh he's good but i'm good it's like if somebody played so well that it made me feel like that i'm inadequate i would feel it in a very very painful strong way Right, I would get jealous of people's abilities. It was—it's not all bright. It gets dark, you know. And you—you <laughs> you need to learn how to use that energy as fuel too. You know, there's a dark side to being that nobody's really talking about. Um, and if you're not competitive in that way, and you don't know how to take those things you're feeling and turning them turn them into motivation. Uh, then you're never going to put in the time and energy that it takes to uh, to actually become something, you know. And I think that's that's really when when I look at players and the difference between players that are great and players that are not so great. The one thing that I really see is that the players that are great want to change. They want to become something that they are not. They're never happy with how they are. So. And players that are very mediocre accept themselves. Mm-hmm. No, they're true. happy. They're happy with what they are. They don't want to change. But it's like, I don't know. I think even a guy like Charlie Parker was in a constant state of transforming. You yeah. know, and um, it's you know. Did you ever hear the term lateral truth? Uh, no, explain it to me. So. The way most people get better is linear, not lateral, right? So if I get better, that means like, let's say I'm picking up my guitar and I'm gonna, I know that modes are important and people play a lot of Ionian modes on major chords. So I'm just going to practice Ionian mode. And that's a linear way of doing it, right? I just do it more and more and more of this concept. But then I, I start realizing maybe that I'm playing very boring rhythms, Mm-hmm. Right, so knowledge from an from a realm that I was unaware of starts accruing, right? Right. So it's more like the knowledge that you don't see in front of you from from focusing the knowledge that happens in the periphery of your vision. It's, right. It's what they call like a paradigm shift. So now you see the world in a wider way, and the real problem with with being too focus too narrow in in the way that you progress in music and the way you learn is that you get to from point a to point b but within the prison of what you can perceive at the time and real growth happens i think by a combination of those you need to be able to get all the way to that wall of ability but then when you get to the wall it's not just you know metronome 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 just like trying to break down something in that way what you really need to do is see the world of music and possibility in a wider way and redefine the goals because 
the world has a way of kind of expanding the more you progress. And if it doesn't, you're, you're going to be always stuck, always butting your head against the wall. Right. Well, what's that? What's that famous quote? I'm not. I think it's Einstein or something. You know, insanity is trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also another Einstein quote that's relevant is that things should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, and yes. what we try to do a lot of times uh, is simplify the exercise in a way that's too reductive to where the music that we're playing is more complex than the way we practice it sure you know so and and maybe in a point in time you're not ready to face the complexity so you need to narrow it to to have an effective practice but when you're done with the practice you need to somehow ask yourself questions about the music and make sure that the exercises you're designing for yourself are appropriate for the kind of challenge that you're going to be facing i, I think that you know, a good definition for me and that I think for, you know, you can use for learning jazz improvisation is that to learn jazz improvisation is to learn the mechanics of choice making mm-hmm. on cyclical structures and time. Okay. Right? Well, that's what we're doing. We're making choices on forms, whether it's a blues or Donnelly or whatever, giant steps, doesn't matter. But those things are repetitive and they're moving in the cycle in time, and we're making choices on them, like harmonic, rhythmic, and timbral choices. And to really have an effective practice, you need to define three, if you accept that definition, that that's what we're doing, then you need to, first of all, learn what it means to learn, mm-hmm. learn what it means to make choices, and learn what, it, what those structures are. Those are the real three things that we need to kind of get together. So... You know, the logical processes that you use to learn, you know, there are, there are three of them, right? There's what we call like reduction, induction, and deduction. But break, right? break down those for the audience. So start, start with the first one. Okay, so reduction is when you take a look at something that happens, like something that blows your mind, like Charlie Parker's solo. Yeah. And you make a simplified model that you can tackle. But you don't ask yourself any questions about underlying form, meaning you just play the licks. That's how gypsy jazz players learn how to play gypsy jazz. They sit around a campfire, they put the Django record on, and they just learn the phrases that he's playing with some sort of notion that somewhere in the future, it's going to come together in some way. So it's the way that a classical musician practices a piece, right? And that's a big part of jazz because... Um, I mean, I wouldn't do it with entire solos, but definitely like, you know, everybody's done it with a phrase here, phrase there. You just got to get things under your fingers without really asking yourself any questions about what mode you're playing, what the rhythms are. You're not being analytical. You're just doing. Right. Right. That's reduction. Um, Induction Mm -hmm. is when you listen to music from the surface inwards and you try to figure out what's going on. Right, So that's where analytical thinking starts. So if I listen to Charlie Parker and I notice that every time there's a C major, he plays like, right, in this part of the form. So I'm starting to notice how how the things that people do, you know, 
kind of interact with the things they're doing them on. Mm -hmm. And I'm starting to notice the things that keep happening again and again. The choices that people keep making, the choices that a person keeps making is, is you know, define their style of playing. Right. Right. So, so I'm start. So perhaps, you know, so perhaps you're listening to a lick or a line or you hear this particular musician, Sonny Rollins, Charlie Parker, whoever, Bud Powell, and you hear, you know, what what is that thing that I'm hearing that constantly makes the chord changes come out? And then you, oh, they're landing on the third of this chord. Right. And then you start going, oh, maybe that's, maybe like I heard that, but I didn't really understand it until I kind of really looked at it and tried to see what was underneath the hood. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes, from okay. the outside in, but you're still listening. You're still taking in the, the phenomena and coming up with the explanation. Mm -hmm. Deduction is the opposite. It's when you start with the explanation and try to build the phenomena. Like if I tell you, you know, that's the way Jamie Ebers old books work. Right. Right. Play C Ionian on C. Then when on the E7, play E mixolydian flat two, flat six. Right. Then on the A7, play, you know, it's like when you just go mode by mode and you're like, oh, you should play syncopated rhythms. Now, the problem with deduction is that there are many, many more possibilities of putting together modes and rhythms that don't sound good right. than that do. Right? right. Yes. So if you don't have some sort of a priori image of what jazz playing means that's in your mind, you will never be able to deduct from the material how to put it together. Yeah, absolutely. But, it, but if you don't, but, but if you're just inducting, then you never get the freedom from the material to move ideas around. So without deduction, you don't have that kind of freedom inside the modes and inside the arpeggios to just kind of cruise because right. you're just obsessed with other people's lines and licks. With just reduction, you're a classical player. So it's more like you need all three of those processes to be working in your practice constantly for you to really understand what's going on. So in one way, you need the ability to just do the thing, like move your fingers as fast as Charlie Parker did in the similar contour, getting a similar sound, right? Then the other bit is to be able to listen to him and understand what he's doing over what. And then the other bit is seeing how the materials make up the lines, right? Not take his face away and just see the modes, see the rhythms, see the articulations. Right. So going back to deduction, just to make sure that I'm on, and everybody listening is on the same page here, kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing from you with deduction is, it's kind of like, you know, we learn scales, we learn the chord tones, maybe we even go even further, we're like, what are guide tones? And maybe we learn some, you know, chord scale theory. And so all these things to me are kind of like the uh, the grammar in sentence structure. So when we first learn a language, right, we, you know, when we were little kids, whatever our native language was, we actually didn't understand what we what was happening. We didn't understand sentence structure and the a well in, in English anyways the ABCs right and things like this. We we just were mimicking our parents right or our mm -hmm. family whoever we were raised by and expressing those things. And then yeah. later we start expanding our vocabulary by understanding more. So if we you're, only look at correct. it from a so, so you start so you're starting with a process of induction right go to a process of reduction right, yeah. and end up with a process of deduction. But if we're just so only doing deduction, right, then we're just, we're basically just... Well, take a baby and try, to, try, to, get, try to give him <laughs> the Oxford grammar book. Yeah, you not going to work start, out. Start with, you know, start with letters and grammars and structure and see where you end up. It's not going to work, right? So you have to start with the resolution of the word. 
Right. Because the word is is symbolic, right? And and that's really how we start learning. And I think that's true for anybody. Like anybody that starts playing starts with fragments. You know, when you try try to learn jazz, what the what the first things you learn like a bebop lick a bebop scale descending, you know, a pentatonic thing, right? You're just, you're not going for things that are phrases, you know, unless, and and if you do, you become that kind of player, you know, which is a really horrible kind of player, <laughs> right? Like the lick player is right. just, you know, there, there hasn't been one in history that was like, you know, notable that, that went that route, Right. Or even like the scale player, right? Someone who you can tell is just kind of, you know, plugging and playing scales over top. Yeah, of yeah, sure. Because it doesn't work. You know, the, the, reason, the, reason it's, um, the reason it's bad is that we can tell that the person is aimless because they're just trying to deduct. They, they're trying to be engineers about it, right? Just, uh, you know, I know the material, so I'm just going to put it together in a random way and it's going to sound like jazz. Like, no, because there are many, many more ways of doing it that are not jazz. And in the world of possibility, there are billions of ways you can put together, you know, rhythms and bits of modes to make jazz phrases, but there is an infinity ways of you know of ways that that don't add up to that right so you can't just navigate randomly you have to navigate with some sort of vision in mind with some sort of um, image of what good playing means to you so and that's really i think the thing about having musical heroes to having having these idols what they really provide is um what, what what they really provide is the image of perfection. They're not perfect, right? But maybe in your mind for a while, you just kind of, they become the light at the end of the tunnel until you don't really need them anymore, until you're just playing. Right. Right. They, they, they become the example. And it's a torch that they've, they're carrying from generation to generation. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an old torch. Yeah. They had their own heroes. Yeah, absolutely. It keeps getting passed on. Yeah. So that that would be the first thing I would talk about because that's the learning part, how to learn. So but re- reduction, that, induction, and, and deduction. I love that. And deduction, right. So that's that's kind of like just the logical processes uh, for learning. Now, when you get into choice making, right, How what are musical choices, right? So I, I think a really good definition is Stravinsky's definition of music in general. He says that music is organized sound, Mm -hmm. right? So that's to organize something in time, you know, follows the question of when something happens. Or if you're a composer and you're free of time, it's where on a piece of paper. Sound itself is made up of pitch and sound color and timbre. So, Pitch is what happens. Mm-hmm. Timbre is how it happens. Right? So if you're looking at, again, whoever's musical choices, and you know when he did something in the music, meaning measure two, you know, beat three, 16th note four, you've kind of narrowed down a location. Now you can ask yourself what he did. So let's say it was an A3, Right. And then you ask yourself how, like the vibrato Sidney Boucher uses, it's like, how mm. did he do that, 
right? So you know how you figure it out with your body, right? So it's like you know how to do, what to do, and when to do it. Then you understand the choice. So it, it's it's you got to define what it means to understand music, or you're never going to understand it. Right. Right. Because if you're trying to understand it emotionally or something like that, well, that's very subjective. But like this kind of brings it. It's funny because for a lot of people, this sounds way out there, but this is bringing it down to earth. I'm just asking myself the questions that I ask about the tablecloth or the chair. Where is the chair? What is it made of? How did they make it? Right. And then you don't you would just. It's so that's that's understanding the choice making now. The other thing is understanding the cyclical moving structures, right? Because we said that like the definition is to learn jazz is to learn choice making on cyclical moving structures that are moving in time in a circle, mm-hmm. like those 12 bars of the blues. So then it's learning, you know, kind of the, that melody that the bass is playing and what, how does that affect your choices? And also we use chords not only to draw harmony from but also to mark time in that circle of time that's spinning Mm -hmm. right and for a lot of people the skill that's missing is to be able to actually be painting on a moving reel like that right you know and so that's that's another skill to build so yeah i mean the tricky bit is that a lot of students are hungry for exercises. They, it's too much. They want the teacher or the YouTube guy to tell them what to do. Right. They don't want to think, right? But that's like going to the gym and looking at like you know the strongest guy and be like, what? Like, okay, show me, show me how much you're lifting. Let's <laughs> let's all just move that. It's like it doesn't like intuitively, you would know that it's wrong with pushing weights. Because you'd hurt yourself, right? But you hurt yourself in the same way practicing because you're just not going to practice if you don't dial in the challenge to be appropriate with where you're at. If, you're, if you give up that thing of understanding what you're doing and you're, you get used to just being lost all the time, you're not learning. Right, absolutely. Yeah, you, your philosophy is very much rooted in it, the actually similar philosophy that I have is that the most valuable thing we can do for musicianship for our jazz playing is to understand how to practice well, because at the end of the day, like you said, we can go on YouTube, we can listen to this podcast, for example, and we mm-hmm. can say, oh, I just learned a little technique. Oh, I just learned this little thing here. Um, hey, what's this other bright, shiny object right here? And we're just learning stuff, but we're not really understanding how to apply it. We're not really understanding what we're doing. We're not really able to form a picture that is influenced by our why, by our goals, mm-hmm. right? And therefore, we end up aimless, and we end up in the same spot we've always been. And that's where we get frustrated. Yeah, yeah. And I think the challenge is so big to, to understand people's playing that uh, it's just easier to ask somebody else right. to, to think for you. Right, but but since this whole business of improvising is making choices, if you're asking somebody else to make choices, you're already kind of sacrificing the quality of your practice because a big part of it is choosing what to work on. Yes, it's making like getting in a habit of good choices and trusting yourself, and also a lot of times you're going to make mistakes, but then you get to walk back and take that different split in the road, right? And be like, ooh, this was a bad road to go down. 
spent a lot of time and energy working on something stupid usually giant steps right uh and you know <laughs> and then uh let's work on something that's actually going to get me better you know yeah so when we talk about making choices um you know when we're improvising we're making quick choices right so yeah I mean, when we're composing um i do like i do like the the uh I guess the the phrase or the thought that you know composing is improvisation slowed down and vice versa because when it, when we're talking about composing we're having lots of time to make choices and even redo some of the choices we're making but when we're improvising the time is going by so quickly so how mm-hmm. do we how do we learn to make those choices quickly I would say by committing to the resolution of the word so like like you said, you know, like the grammar and the language bit was, and that doesn't matter if you're a composer, an author, or, you know, a freestyle rapper, right? Both people are making choices with the same material, words, not letters, not phrases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the idea of... Um, the idea of appropriate speech, the same way we're talking right now about kind of complex subjects, is that our relationship to the language is a relationship of trust. Right. Because we trust that if we can hold a concept in our mind, the language we're using is going to be an intuitive unfolding tool that just helps us paint on time. You could argue that now time is moving too. Time moves when you're playing and when you're not playing. It's kind of the tragedy of life. You know, we just kind of, it's moving and we die. Uh, So, but you either paint on it or you don't. And whether you're painting on actual time or on hypothetical time, which is kind of like what a composer does, I wouldn't say it's slow down composition. It's, um, it's just, you know, could be sped up, could be slowed down. It just doesn't have a metric relationship to time. Sure. You know, if there's no constant time, you know. Yeah. So once you start, once you start, um, and it's funny, you know, like, I, I don't mean to get too philosophical here, but all the tempos, right, are moving all the time. Think about what I mean. Think about like time, that thing that that we're all on, that big wave that's just making us all all older and the day turn to night, right? Contains 60 BPM and 61 BPM and every Mm. decimal between it. And it's all moving in like a big river with many, many, many infinite little streams. Yeah. All you're doing is pointing at one of them and being like, hey, I'm going to paint on this one. I like that. You know what I mean? And that's, you're just drawing attention to a way of writing time. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the plethora that you, that the canvas you paint on. And then you're like, ooh, I'm doing another thing. Like every, you know, 12 bars, each, each four of these is going to be one. And I'm going to use 12 of those units. And then I'm going to spin it in a circle. And it's all, time is still moving onwards, but there's going to be some sort of symmetry every 12 of these, right? Like a chain of circles. Right. And that would be my jazz song, you know? So to paint on metric things, you have to, you have, to have the ability to kind of get in there, 
right? That's what people call a pocket or, or a groove. You know, it's like, um, did, did you ever hear the, the definition of the word groove, where the word groove comes from? Uh, no, absolutely not. Okay, so in, in old jazz talk, they, it was meant to describe the inside can tunnel inside a record that the pin ah. drops in right and it's think about like how like what it means to be in to play a groove to be in a groove right with a bunch of musicians it's like there's a needle and you're on a spinning surface and right. it's pinpointed and that's where the music is and everybody's kind of moving together right yeah. to groove um and the the ability to groove, the ability to do that is exactly that ability to notice steady time and then subdivide and make some sort of like rhythmic picture that doesn't get away from it. It doesn't fall behind and it's like we're, all the band is just kind of moving together as a unit. Um, so I would say that's probably the most crucial skill out of all of them but there there's a lot of skills you need to have you need to have you need to keep form you need to play in time you need to know what to play in time you need to know how to subdivide and what those subdivisions do to the music right um i mean a thing that i always talk about to students is realizing that as as a soloist especially or but any any role in the band there are three modes of uh, operation when it comes to phrasing. You can do one of three things and only three things. I don't think there's another one. At least that's the way I perceive it as a listener. You can make statements, you can ride the groove, and you can shred. Okay, that, let's, let's, that, go, let's go through the first one. So make statements, describe that a little more. Well, if I, if I imagine the swing groove, the walking bass and the swung drums as, as a picture, right? Like a, as a painting, like the one behind me, yep. right? That's, that's what the painting behind me has a, a blue sky and blue water. So if I make another blue thing, like a blue ball in there, it's not going to pop out. There's no contrast, so if I have swung eighth notes and I'm walking bass line that goes right um, and I just play swung eighth notes I'm not creating any contrasts I'm riding the groove that's, gotcha. that's a good place to start so riding the groove that middle thing is just playing rhythmically the same material that the rhythm section is already providing and it's good it makes things sound cohesive but it's not creating any contrast the question is how do I put that red bird on the blue surface right how do I make something pop out if you listen to Louis Armstrong playing like La Vie en Rose or something mm -hmm. right the way he plays eighth notes he plays a lot of straight eighth notes so instead of playing bang Ba 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 ba. He'll play ba 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 ba. That's right. Yep. Ba 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 ba. Ba da 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 da. Ba 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 ba. Ba da 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 ba ba. So that that misfit between those straight eighth notes and that swung groove. Yeah gives you that contrast that's making statements so it's using tense rhythms against the consonant the, the consonant groove to to make your whatever you're playing pop out shredding 
is doing the same thing with the smaller subdivisions, right? When it isn't uh, Charlie Parker or Coltrane playing, right? He's making statements by going kind of dense, right? So if you're playing, uh, you know, that same groove, like, and you're playing, you know, right? So those 30-second note kind of things create also a dazzling kind of effect that creates contrast, right. but it's not using the subdivisions that are slower than writing the groove. So if you think about writing the groove as the center of your playing, then there are this, you know, the wider subdivisions and the denser subdivisions. Gotcha. So we got statements writing writing the groove and shredding. Did I get that and right? Shredding. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, again, that's how I call them. Shredding so these, is a very these, unpopular word in jazz. <laughs> right. Right. So the, yeah. The, right. The not so much in rock. Um, so these are these are very much so rhythmic ideas here. Rhythm, All rhythmic. Yes. Being, All rhythmic. Being, so, so talking about tension and release just from the prism of rhythmic phrasing. Maybe right. I should have said that in the beginning. So yeah, regardless of what harmonic things you're you're going to, you know, harmonic choices you're going to make on the chords. The truth is, I mean, when it comes to harmony, there isn't so much you can do if you really want to outline the harmony. I think anybody who has experience with jazz knows this. And um, a lot of the people who are doing really well on Instagram right now (laughs) and... uh, and and have become famous over the last couple of decades, play extremely out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and two things to notice. First of all, there's less and less people listening to jazz. Maybe there's a correlation there. Uh, you know, and the other thing is that there's an advantage and a disadvantage with painting with colors that are outside of that palette the harmonic palette uh and first you get to create a lot of excitement if your rhythm is great right it's it's exciting to hear you're in new york you probably hear this every night at smalls you know you hear somebody going like way out playing all these things that aren't in the harmony but their rhythm is so tight that's like mm-hmm. they get away with it and you get a lot of students making noises and this but the problem is that your second solo of the show sounds a whole lot like your first. Uh, that's true. Yes. Right? right. Your third one's going to. And so, and at a certain point, you start asking yourself questions. Wait a second. What, what am I learning when I'm learning Stella? And why don't I play the changes of Stella over Autumn Leaves? Right. Why don't I just play the, the changes of Stella over everything? Right? If I, if I can make, if I can sell it. Why don't I just do it? And the reason is that the songs are what make the harmonic the harmonic progressions of the songs are what make um, make them different than each other. Right, right. Right. That's it. It provides you. It provides you kind of um, if you imagine yourself walking from your house to the store. It's a different road to get to the store. Right. right? Every, everyone's a different path. Yeah. So, so yeah, but uh, back back to the point of um, of tension and release with rhythm. I kind of kind of went into harmony there. Uh, so, 
we were talking about choice making and we were talking about playing over these structures. So I think playing over these structures was that that thing I talked about with time and realizing that it's all part of a big stream and the choice making rhythmically, the when things happen has to do with understanding those modes of rhythmic phrasing. Uh, I had an interesting experience with Marvin because uh, we teach a lot of clinics. Nice. When we're on the road, we do once or two, one, once or twice a week at least, and in, in uh, universities or music stores or whatever, wherever would have us. And something that I always ask, no matter where I go, is what's a scale? Mm-hmm. And how would you define a scale? Well, first of all, I want to just share with whoever's listening something interesting, which is there has been zero students or teachers in maybe, I don't know, 500 institutions, you know, that have answered this, which is just like, you know, some people would say some things, but then I'd be like, it, it, it would be kind of easy to, to work around. But I think it, it deserves a pause just, just so people understand that people are teaching and learning something on repeat every day and paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it that nobody bothered to define for themselves or help other people define. Right. How messed up is that? Uh, th- that's interesting. I- I'd love to hear what your definition of a scale is. Okay. Well, I mean, so before I give you that, I'll give you my definition of music theory. I love it. So we're doing okay. a little, little teaser into it. I like this. Well, you can't have a good definition of the scale if you don't understand why you need theory and what we're doing yeah. when we're talking about, about music theory. Music theory isn't like scientific theory. I can't prove or disprove things to you. It, you know, things sound a certain way and we name the way they sound. Right? right. It's more it's much more like language than like scientific theory. A good analogy would be imagine that you're a librarian, right? And you have millions of books, and those millions of books represent in our case the world of sound. And you have an almost infinite number of ways, criteria that you can arrange these books by. You can do it by height, weight, year of publication, name of author style, whatever, right? Now imagine that somebody comes to your library and asks you to check out every book written in France between 1918 and 1919. And you just spent 10 years organizing your library by weight. (laughs) Right. You are totally screwed. Ill-prepared for that, right, yeah. Exactly. So the idea is this. The way you organize your musical universe needs to fit the task at hand. Ah, If you go to Juilliard and you learn how to orchestrate for string quartets and then you need to go play a bebop gig, you're screwed. If you need, if you played, organized your library the way a bebop player needs to and then you need to play like Stevie Ray Vaughan, you're screwed. You're always screwed if if you're not able to draw the information in a way that's appropriate for the task. So the question is, what's a useful way to talk about scales? 
Right. What do scales allow me to do? Or what, what's their job? Because I can define however, you know, I can say that one note is a scale. C is a scale, just a note C. I can say that C and D are a scale. I can say whatever I want, right? But that's kind of like a trick I can do to language. It's, you got to find a resolution when you're talking about something that it's useful. That's why we have a different, a different word for chair and table. They're, it's true that they're different, but they're also the same. They're all made of atoms, right? But if I asked you, can I have some atoms to put on my atoms? Because later I need some atoms for the atoms. You wouldn't know what I'm talking about. Right. Now, these 11-note scales, 10-note scales, all this stuff that people are trying to sell, like um, more modern classical um, theory, it's not that it doesn't exist. It exists, but it's useless. It's useless for the kinds of challenges we're up against. Now, what are the kind of challenges? Well, we need to play on chords. Right. Right? So what gives me all the options of you know, something that is useful vertically and horizontally. That would be the question that leads to a good definition of scales, meaning that I would use the same information to construct the chords and the lines. Because a blues scale is a beautiful tool for playing this way. Yes. But if you add that flatted fifth to the chord, it's not going to work in a Texas blues. Right. The bebop scale is a great tool if you're trying to lay it out in time. If you try to play that flat six on a major seven chord behind somebody, he'll look at you. It won't work. Right? Okay. Enough, enough uh, <laughs> five, five, five rules for what makes a scale. Number one, cyclical by the octave. Every octave is identical. Okay. So yeah. if I have C, D, E, and one, I'm not going to have you know, C, D, E flat in the next. Number two, I don't use any intervals that are smaller than a half step. Mm -hmm. No quarter tones, no microtonal music. So it's already kind of tossing away non-Western music, right? right. Yep. For my definition. Number three, and here's where people start kind of falling off the wagon because it requires some abstract thinking. A scale doesn't exist in the real world. It's a concept. It's an idea. Agreed. Now, you, yes. you got to understand why, right? Because the moment I play something in the real world, there's a new phenomenon that happens, which is tonality, right? That phenomena is the difference between modality, between a mode and a scale, right? A scale is a mode without a tonal center. Mm -hmm. yep. A mode is a scale with a tonal center. Correct. So, when I just toss a contour into the world, right? That's a Dorian sound, but it's the notes of C major. But just, even without the bass line, the way I arrange the contour makes you hear it gravitate towards a point. And it's a, it's a trick of perception. We're not able to hear things atonally. Even atonal music isn't atonal. It's just poly polytonal. Gotcha. The centers are moving so quick that we're not able to hone in on one. But we're not hearing none of them. We're just hearing too many of them. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's the that's rule number three: that scales only exist as ideas, as groups of notes, but with no one of them being the tonal center. Rule number four: you can't have two half steps in a row. Okay. Ever. Yep. I mean, that's right. That makes sense. Yeah. 
Yeah. So why? Because the moment you start having two half steps in a row, you start having things that will work melodically, but not work harmonically. Yes. Yes. I hear that. Yep. Okay. So in other words, the chromatic scale isn't, isn't really a scale. It's not a scale. The blues scale isn't a scale. The bebop scale isn't a scale. The double harmonic major scale isn't, uh, isn't a scale, you know. None of, none of those things are scales. And rule number five is that you've got to cram as many notes into the octave as long as you follow, but you need to follow rule number four. And if you do that, you get 33 modes of seven scales. Yeah. And that's all your options. So four diatonic scales, which means seven note scales. You get major, melodic minor, harmonic minor, harmonic major. Right, you get three symmetric scales, and that those those have seven modes modes each. So the, those four diatonic scales have seven modes each. That's twenty eight, right? And you have three symmetric scales: diminished, which has two modes, half whole whole half, yep. whole tone, which has one mode, and augmented, which is like half step minor third, half step minor third, which has two modes. Thirty three modes in total gives you all the options for four chord tones and three tensions between the four diatonic scales, and then a few other options with the symmetric ones. Right. Now, the, the important thing with all of that is, you said this before, what context, like what, like what, what, what is the context of what you are trying to, to play these things, right? For, sure. You know, what, what, sure. Why would we, what, what's the point of learning these tools, right? Yeah. And, and this is the thing. If you're, if you want to learn jazz standards, then that, this is the language that gives you the freedom to maneuver inside the chords. Right. If you're not interested in that, if you grew up listening to Ornette Coleman, right, then this, this, this kind of thinking won't lead you to that kind of playing. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to figure out some other things. Yeah, hear ya. Yeah. So that you know, those are the those are the worlds that are easy to talk about. You know, I mean, it's not easy; it's complicated and takes a long, a lot of practice. But the things you can organize in your mind are the world of when things happen, which is the rhythm stuff we talked about, and what happens, which is the pitch. How things happen. How how in the world do you make your vibrato sound like Sidney Bechet's? Is so internal. How do you make your right hand, your left hand vibrato on guitar sound like Django's? It's just that's the real physicality of playing, and that's where after you lay those things out on the instrument or during that time, you know, you have to figure out a lot of tactile things, and that's a lot of the fun of playing. Right. Oh, yeah, it's, absolutely. That's where you start that's, to get to know your instrument. You start to get to understand the sounds that you're hearing translated onto your instrument. What does that actually feel like? Yeah, and you get to like actually escape the mind and just do. You know, it's like the, it's the doing that's really the. A lot of people think if you if you're trying to conceptualize that part of playing and write a book about it, you're never going to make it. But if you just kind of immerse yourself in just playing, then that's where a lot of the fun is. Trying oh, to figure yes. out how to get the color out of your instrument. Yes. And what's what's possible? Um, yeah, I think another thing that I want to say to a lot of people who are trying to figure out jazz improvisation is that one thing I didn't mention and that I should have mentioned in the beginning 
when we're talking about learning, we talked about seeing Charlie Parker, about using those processes of, uh, of reduction, induction, and deduction about their playing. But what's stopping a lot of people is not being able to use those same processes on themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got to see yourself, hear yourself, and see where your playing is at using those exact processes too. Right? right, And that's harder because a lot of people don't have an image of themselves, especially early on. But you've got to work with that. You've got to bridge that distance between you and Charlie Parker. And if you're not honest enough to see how you play and hear the mistakes you're making and on repeat, right, then you're not going to get better either. Because sure. you're, you're, you're not working on something tangible. You, you, you remove yourself from the equation. Right. So self-analysis is always very difficult, right? And that, very that, difficult. That's, that's where sometimes it, it can be helpful to have someone point out to you, like, hey, this is something that you're doing. It's kind of like, you know, if, uh, you know, if I keep, if it, you know, let's say I'm, I'm, a, I'm cooking, I'm, and so I, I, you know, I go up, I, I go up and I'm just, I'm, I'm doing the same mistakes. I'm over-salting my food constantly. And everybody, you know, every, people are too kind to say anything, right? You know, they're just like, ah, you know, Brent likes to cook. But then... If, if a chef is going to come to me and say, hey, listen, you know, your food is a little oversalted. Here's what you need to do to adjust, right? Then you can go, oh, right, okay. I need to mm-hmm. stop salting my food too much. And that sometimes that's where that can be helpful to have someone from the outside, to, you know, give you, give you a hand. I think teachers are amazing because some people are not able to take criticism or think really i think uh, listen to music and think i think those things are are contradicting for a lot of people and uh if you're if you're unable to do it with other people's music and with your own music too then you might let me rephrase there are two kind of problems you can have one of them is that you can't taste when food is too salty. That's a huge problem. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right? Second one is that you can't taste when your food is too salty. Right. And I think that's more solvable and it just takes, you know, getting getting a stick out of your behind. Um, which it's hard to do, you know, maybe you need the right person to tell you that. But like if you're the kind of guy that like tastes somebody else's food and is very critical, but then no judgment for yourself, you're not going to get much better. Yeah. You know, uh, but, but taking it to the other extreme is what you see most students do. They are so defeated, right? They're so self-critical that they don't even give themselves a chance. You know, it's like, you know, the moment they start adding like a little bit of salt, it's like, it's ruined, you know? But it's like, no, <laughs> yeah. it's just like, there's nothing else but salt yet. Right. <laughs> you need food there too, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I guess that's that's how I'd think about it. You know, you want with with the salt analogy, which is a good analogy. You know, you wanna you wanna be able to apply the same judgment that you apply to your heroes and to things you don't like to yourself, and yeah. use that to elevate your own skill level over time. Well, I always say there's 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 no room for ego when learning a language. You, you you have to be willing to sound bad at first. You have to be mm-hmm. willing to be critical 
of yourself and not let that be something that derails you. Um, and yeah. when we let our ego get too much in the way, that's when we get scared and we stop trying to, to play and we stop trying to grow. And we, we have this more fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset. So if we can eliminate, well, at least try to anyways, some of that ego, we can, we can start to grow and we can start to be critical of ourselves in a healthy way. That, that stimulates growth, one that doesn't uh, handicap us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The ego talk always confused me a little bit. Like, what, if you had to, like, the, what, what do you mean when you say ego? Well, the, the, uh, the want to be good all the time. Like, the, the want to, when you, stand, when you step into a room at a jam session and you hear someone better than you, and your immediate reaction is, I don't want to be in this situation anymore because I can't handle the fact that I'm not as talented as this other person. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. Um, I always use this example. My wife is from Greece and I go to Greece. We go to Greece multiple times a year. And, you know, as a result, I've picked up a lot of, you know, I picked up Greek a little bit, right? But just, mm-hmm. but just words and phrases. But I'm always too scared sometimes to say something in Greek because I'm afraid of looking stupid, right? Mm-hmm. So then I stop, so then I don't try. And, that's not going to help me grow. That's not going to help me learn, is it? Okay. Well, I mean, the, those are two different things in my mind. The first okay. one, I, I'm not, I don't agree with you. I think that okay. if you feel very bad right. you know, about yourself, it's possible that it's for a very good reason. Sure. You know, And it's not like the, you shouldn't I, – I, I wouldn't uh, – take a situation where I'm feeling inadequate, like my skill set isn't good, and automatically dismiss it to being self-conscious. Maybe I'm right. Maybe this person is playing a subdivision over a groove that I can't play. And maybe the only thing that's blocking me from playing that is some hard practice and lots of thinking. And maybe that person just made me aware of that. Yes. Right? So, you know, and it's... And it's a weird kind of thing because, you know, it's, people have a way of making you become become conscious of things that you, you know, that you were just aware of, kind of. You know, you know what I mean? It's like that. Yes. I, a really good, a really good uh, metaphor I like for the difference between awareness and consciousness is that they say, like, we can't possibly take in a everything we're aware of you're, it's just all your sensory input and there are things in your own room that you it's just too much useless information it's like you're standing in a big desert right and there's too much sand to actually account for all the sand yes. but when you pick up a handful of it you become conscious of it yes. and then you can really examine it in many resolutions right so a lot of times players make us conscious of things we knew were there we saw them all the time but we didn't know how to process them right we didn't we, or maybe we weren't in a place where we were ready to process them and that, and now it's coming in the wave of a bad feeling so the question to me would be how to take that bad feeling and turn it into hard work yes not just a meditation to avoid the bad feeling yeah I mean, well just to, cl- just to just to clarify i'm not necessarily saying ego has to correlate with feeling good or feeling bad but mm-hmm. more so uh, I guess when I talk about ego, I'm talking more about it being used in a destructive way. Not not necessarily that when you when you feel something bad and you feel and you think to yourself, 
you know, we'll use the example of going to a jam session and you hear someone that's able to do something that you're not able to do. You might feel bad because you're like, well, there's something I'm lacking there. And what is that? And then you're, the consequence of that is either one or two things. Either it's going to be, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. Uh, and because this makes me feel bad, I'm going to run away from it. Or the mm. other way we can respond to that is, that's what Carol Dweck calls in her, her book, Mindset, a growth mindset. We can look at that and go, I feel a little bad there, but what is it? Well, this person's doing this or this or this. Well, this is great because this is a learning opportunity for me. And now I have the opportunity to go back to the practice room and evaluate what that was. So it may have hurt my ego a little bit, but my ego isn't what's stopping me from growing. Well, I would say that, you know, I would argue that the destructive power is a part of the power of change. Because okay. you have to destroy what's there, you know, and, and that ego is the part and that ego that wants to eat itself, that wants to be self-destructive, maybe is maybe holding on to it and giving everything a positive spin is holding on to the to the thing that made you get to a certain age without learning how to play some 16th notes. Yeah. No, I hear you. No, I, I, so, I get so, that So, you know, yeah. I mean, a part of the destruction and the self-destruction that people are trying to run away from is holding on to places in them that need to die for the new, new places to appear. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't, so it's actually ego protecting itself by giving everything a positive spin instead of kind of embracing the negative feelings and letting them lead to some new change and new outlook. Like, what is the difference between me and that guy playing? We both have hands. We both have a brain. What's he doing that I'm not doing? How can I change the things I do in my life to make choices that are more like him? Why is this affecting me this way? It's like, it's real examination. So with that part, I mean, I would say that a self-destruction, if you're trying to be violent again, I'm not saying kill yourself, <laughs> right. but let but let your, you know, let certain unuseful, parts of you that are just dead would burn away you know it's like let yourself change the whole point is to change the yes. point is to let things die and let new things appear um so that side of the ego I, I i wouldn't agree with the statement the second part that you said i do agree with that that's a problem and mm-hmm. that's you know being afraid of making a fool of yourself right and i think that for a lot of people they're unable to play jazz because they're not willing to accept their level of playing. Right. They have zero control over the most basic things. And if they attempted to just play, they would just make choices in moving time on thing. It would just be like random, horrible solos, horrible, terrible, terrible solos, not in time, wrong notes, everything bad. But if you are never, if you never hit the play button, you will never start. Yes. You can't piece it together from Charlie Parker licks. It doesn't work like that. You just you just got to suck it in, play a blues scale over the entire form, you know, or whatever wherever the starting point is, just play random shit and then start using whatever ear, imagination, knowledge, deduction, reduction, induction, whatever you can to just get yourself writer. Get you, get it sounding better. But if you don't start from this place of trying, yes. playing is just trying. Let's like just hit the play button on choice making, and 
embarrass yourself. Just don't do it in public. Like you don't have to go through the jam session <laughs> if you can't play the songs. Absolutely, yes. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to like put yourself in Carnegie Hall before you're ready. Like it's taught like this this notion. I think it's because Instagram makes every bedroom a stage now. But it's like if it's if you think it's embarrassing, it's probably embarrassing. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? It's probably terrible. It's fine. There's a lot, but but if you do it at home a lot, it's gonna become less terrible with time. You know, but you just gotta let yourself play. You know, that's that's the one thing that I keep trying to get across to, to students, you know, is that you don't want to make your playing practicing and you don't want to make your practicing playing. Yeah. No, oh, that's absolutely. Yes. That's you a, that's know a what good I mean? uh, yes, that's a that's a good definition of the difference between the two. Yeah. Uh, and and playing the the choice making. I mean, you know, English is a beautiful language. I speak Hebrew. I'm from Israel, but uh English has one thing in it that's so beautiful, which is playing with a toy and playing an instrument is the same word. Right. And in Hebrew it's different words. Yeah. Not not related in any way. Right, and I think English has it right because that thing of moving something through an invisible structure, like a, like an action figure. Yeah, you know, it's basically what we're doing when we're playing jazz. Other than the fact that you know that structure could be perceived objectively, not just subject, or lots of people can perceive it. Right, a blues is something that you can play lines through a blues, and people can see the blues right if you're just moving he-man through air you know then it's harder to imagine what you're seeing yeah yes you know but uh playing is just moving things around in time and yeah. making choices of where they go and what goes where and how you do it how yeah. you go about it practicing is thinking about everything it's thinking about the mechanics getting better at language whatever all those things I think you should practice very hard and think about absolutely everything. And the moment the gig comes, you should think about absolutely nothing and try to have fun. Right. right? But don't have fun at home. <laughs> well, at least if you want to make some real progress, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you really want to, if you're someone who's really wanting to move the needle, then it's it's not always going to feel pleasant to practice. I think that's yeah. where some people get caught up. And I, and I personally have no... I don't mind if people just want to have fun playing. I mean, that's fine. But if you oh, want if you want to make some progress, there's going to be some struggle, you know, in well, the practice the, room. You got to identify the feeling of doing something new, doing something yeah. you don't know how to do. I think I think we all have the same tactile response to it. It feels like somebody put your head underwater and you can't breathe. Right. Like you know, and you get used to it. But like, and and you can take any musical excerpt that you know how to play with your eyes shut, you know, back and forth and get to the tempo where you no longer know how to do it. Yeah. You know, and it's just cross, it's just try it 20 BPM at a time. You'll get there in one minute, right? Any, any of us would to where it, it's like so obvious it's redundant to even think about, you know, to impossible. That, that transition between effortless to impossible is always immediate in skill. Right. You know, um, and I think if you don't explore the fringes of your ability, the edges of your ability in daily, then you stop going there because if you go there once a month, it feels like it's a mistake, like it shouldn't happen. 
right? It's like, ooh, that, that didn't feel good. I must have done something wrong. But it's like if you just spend some time there daily exploring an area of your instrument that you're not comfortable with, exploring a subdivision that you're not comfortable with, exploring a scale you're not comfortable with, exploring a song you're not comfortable with, doing things you're not comfortable with, doing new things, it's, it, it becomes a pattern. Right. Well, it's not such a whiplash, right? When you, when you act, you know, if you're doing it often and frequently, then it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, well, this is a, maybe this is a bad analogy. It's like you put a frog in warm water and slowly turn up the heat. doesn't feel it. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Kinda, I guess yeah. Except, for, except for the end result of pl- pre- playing and practicing is not dying. It's, uh, it's, well, it's I mean, being I think better. I, it's kind of like, it's kind of like working out. You know, yeah. it's like if you do it once, then it feels horrible. If you do it every day, you start seeing it makes your life better. It gives you more energy. You start, you're yeah. starting to like these sensations that seem invasive and unpleasant and horrible if you just do them on occasion. Yes. But you got to get in a real pattern with it. And then progress becomes a pattern, right? And, um, and and change becomes a pattern, and that's that's a good thing. As an avid runner, I could not agree more. Well, Danny, yeah. this has been a this is a really great conversation. There's so much packed in here that like <laughs> everybody is probably like, whoa, there's so much to unpack in here. So I just appreciate you just like yeah. unloading your brain on us, and like I've learned a lot just here. I'm sure everybody listening has too. So I appreciate you being on. Of and you know, I, I would love for you to talk a bit more. I'll just say. Uh, when I heard your band Marvin, I became like what people would call an instant fan. And I think part of that is because I started out with like music being a prog metal, prog rock fan. Like mm-hmm. I was all about that. And then I got really hardcore into jazz. And when I heard your band, I was just like, this is really awesome. So can you Thank talk you. a little bit about Marvin a little bit more? And I know you talked a little bit at the beginning, but a little bit more about Marvin and about your new album. Sure. So, yeah, we put out an album called Strong Thing. Um, it's our eighth. We, it took about 10 hours to make. Uh, <laughs> we just went to the studio and recorded it. And, uh, and it's weird because we do things in a backwards way for most bands, and, and meaning that we write the music, we go out for about a year and play it and change things, talk about it in the van, you know, uh, me and Danny write, write the music and we kind of arrange it as a band, I guess. And like, you know, we're honest about things working and not working. Like, you know, that solo section sucked. This should be that chord, blah, blah, blah. So things kind of take shape show after show after show. So by the time we're ready to record, we've played these songs hundreds of times. Right. And we're, we're ready to put something down. And it's weird because, because committing to an improvised solo on an album as a jazz musician is always a hard experience. Because mm. it could be, it has been so many things. Every time, every night you played it, you played something. But, and it's very strange when, I think, I think not a lot of jazz musicians get this experience just because there's not the situation to play so much anymore like there was 20 or 30 years ago. You know, but I get, to, I get to play almost every night for hours. And when you do, I mean, I was, a thing that always stuck in my mind, I went to Berkeley, was how come my teachers don't sound like Pat Metheny? Mm-hmm. They're Pat Metheny's age. They probably practice just as much as Pat Metheny has by now. 
what's what's the missing ingredient here right that's always been a question in my mind and i think it's that it's it's playing for people every night yeah you can't you know? substitute that no and there's there's a, a another a whole other thing that crystallizes when you start doing it and practicing at home is a start stop process where you isolate problems from time and when you play a set of improvised of music with improvisation every night you don't get to solve the pro like this problem part where you have a blind spot harmonically comes up the first night like oh and the second night like oh yeah the third night oh yeah it's there oh it's like you know and maybe the sixth night you're somehow overriding the system and putting the right thing in the right place yeah and this kind of problem solving where you're massaging a big process is something that doesn't have a substitution you have to do it this way and um what you start seeing with your solos is really interesting because after you play a solo on a on a piece of harmony of spinning harmony you know like a hundred times ideas kind of move in clusters yeah you've already checked out all the nooks and crannies and landed on flat nines and all the dominant chords and then tried to flat 13s and like you know you tried all these voice leading things and you've tried all the subdivisions in different places and you've tried all your tricks on every part of the form so now the ideas kind of start dancing around each other in bigger clumps not licks it's different you know and then i feel like by the time you're ready to like really make an album you've already it's kind of like what we said about ghosts in the beginning you've you've appropriate appropriately buried so many ideas yeah kind of to their conclusion that you're ready to commit to one yeah you well know? and you can hear that on the album is is, is I love that approach to making an album just because you can you can hear that so clearly that this music has been fleshed out yet it's so organic at the same time right it it's just, just sounds so but, it but sounds choices, so alive yeah the choices you just get to stand behind the choices you know because you've just made the other ones in front of people already it's not like I don't know how do you decide going like on the court it's like what's which one's better like, i don't know they're both good <laughs> yeah it's like they're they're interchangeable you know but if you've done both and saw that you the, the earth didn't shatter then you're okay with choosing one you know well that's kind of the fun thing about improvised music i think is that there's so many different possibilities things could be different all the time and uh yeah. that's what keeps it i think exciting for me as a listener and also for me as a player as well and uh, you guys just sound so great. All the musicians are great. I mean, you're a phenomenal guitar player. Love your sound. I think you're playing a, a telly, correct? Is that? That's a Strat. It's a so Strat. Stra- I'm sorry, Strat. Yeah. That's actually what I meant to say. Yeah. yeah. It's, oh man, sounds sounds so great. Where can people it. go go check out this? You, your band, and, and the album. Sure. So uh, the album you get if you go to Marbin M A R B I N uh, MarbinMusic.BandCamp.com. It has mm-hmm. all of our online store. Uh, that the newest one is not available on Spotify. We've decided in our marketing scheme that we're gonna keep them always our newest thing off streaming but it'll be there probably in six months and our other seven are available there um you can go to facebook.com slash marvin music which is where we hang out most of the time uh you can follow us you know you can go to bands in town dot com slash marbin and check out our tour schedule we're going on tour march 13th uh doing a bunch of shows in the southeast and 
going on two cruises, cruise Ooh. to the edge with Yes and the Moody Blues cruise too. Right on. And doing them back to back. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, those are the places. But most of all, I just hope that the people listening will, uh, you know, have more fun playing and have less fun practicing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, everybody, marvinmusic.com or marvinmusic.bandcamp.com and all the social that he just mentioned. Um, Danny, I really appreciate having you on the show. This is oh, a lot dude, of fun. Pleasure. I, have, I have a feeling we'll check in with you sometime later on down the line. Thank you, man. All right, that's all for today's show. want to give another big thanks to uh, Danny Rabin from Marvin for just sharing a lot of really valuable knowledge. Uh, certainly learned a lot from him. I trust that you did as well. Don't forget to check out MarvinMusic.com to learn more about that band and their music and all of the awesome stuff that they're doing over there. All right, this has been a long show, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you go here. I'm going to let you get about your day. Um, and uh, But... But I do want to say, hey, if you got some value from the show today and you've never done this before, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a rating and review telling other people why you like the show. Really appreciate you taking a little bit of time to do that. Really helps out. And of course, if you've never subscribed to the show on any of the many podcasting apps that are out there, please do that. That would be awesome. I really do appreciate that. I don't want you to miss any shows uh, that come out. And uh, I just want you to learn along with me, and I'm here to serve you. I'm here to help you. And as always, I'm going to be coming out with another episode for you next week that I know you're going to love. I know is going to help you with your jazz playing. Uh, I, I, I make sure every week that I'm only putting out the best that I can offer you. So please stay tuned, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the LJS Podcast. Brought to you by LearnJazzStandards.com. Subscribe to the series on iTunes. And don't forget to join our jazz community at LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash newsletter. Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask. That's LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.